So we have uh, two Bible readings this morning. One is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 3, and then the other is uh, a selection from Romans, chapter 12. Okay, so you can follow along in the handout that was in the bulletin or uh, also follow along behind me. Okay, so starting in Leviticus, chapter 3. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You are to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord. The internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both the kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons are to burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering that is lying on the burning wood. It is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If you offer an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, you are to offer a male or female without defect. If you offer a lamb, you are to, uh, you are to present it before the Lord. Lay your hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's son shall, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord. Its fat, the entire fat, tail cut off close to the backbone, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. If your offering is a goat, you are to present it before the Lord. Lay your hand on its head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. From what you offer, you are to present this food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is, an everla- sorry, this is a lasting ordinance for all the generations to come, wherever you live. You must not eat any fat or any blood. And then Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Thank you very much, Luke, and uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. It's lovely uh, to be with you this morning. Um, being a pastor, I've found that it, it's often a bit weird uh, meeting new people in day-to-day life. Uh, weird for them, uh, more so than me. Um, you know, what do you do, Cam? Oh, well, I'm a pastor at church in Kernelite Gardens. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I then try and do my best to sort of salvage the conversation and move it along from there. Um, I'm sure many of us, though, if we're dedicated followers of Jesus, you've had uh, similar moments, uh, perhaps not the first meeting with someone, uh, but as friends and colleagues get to know you and observe your life, at some point you see a look on their face as they realise, perhaps for the first time, that you go to church pretty much every week, 
Uh, and then perhaps you try and describe what you did last night. You went to a community group and you try and explain, and we meet during the week and we read the Bible and pray. Uh, you kind of see them just starting to try and work out what kind of person are they talking to at this point. Uh, it seems to me that uh, most people don't have uh, problems with Christians or Christianity in general, although, of course, we know there are hostile types around. Uh, most people, I think, are, are fine with religion, uh, spirituality, Christianity, whatever. The key, though, uh, the key is that you don't take it too seriously. Don't take it too seriously. Like, for instance, becoming a pastor or, uh, or being an active and committed regular member of a local church. That's just a bit too much. And that's even before we start trying to explain the good news to them about Jesus. It seems to me it just makes people, uh, average Australians, just a bit suspicious, maybe a bit uncomfortable, uh, because I suspect we come across a little bit like fanatics or radicals, uh, if that's us. After all, in this day and age, they must be thinking, like, I know Christianity has some good morals, uh, I can see the benefits of belonging to a religious community, but really, do do you have to believe all of it? Do you have to take it so seriously? Uh, Perhaps uh, some of your family and friends over the years, uh, they've seen your life, they've seen how you've made decisions. Uh, Sometimes they might have seen you make decisions that are are sacrificial, Uh, something that's cost you at work. Perhaps you've turned down a promotion or you've said no to being on the Sunday roster because of some convictions about being a follower of Jesus. Your friends and family might see uh, these convictions having an effect on your family life, on your finances, on your leisure time. Perhaps they say something to you and sort of challenge you on it. Maybe you're taking this thing a bit too seriously. More often, though, I suspect they won't say anything, but they don't have to, because you can read their body language, you can see their faces, you know what they're thinking. They think you take this Jesus thing a bit too seriously. And at one level, if we put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, imagine uh, that, you know, if I was imagining I was the average Australian who knows what the average Australian knows about Christianity, which isn't very much, I would suspect. If I was them... Let's be honest, I'd be suspicious too. A pastor, what went wrong with your life? Because normally, normally in most parts of our life, Australians work out what's the bare minimum you need to do to keep everyone happy. That might just be me, maybe. Uh, but, you know, why would you do more than you have to? Why would you do things the hard way? And if religion is like that, and most religious most religions uh, do tend that way, uh, a lot of religious people do live that way, doing the bare minimum... Why would you do more than that to keep God happy? Surely, if you're a good Australian, you can work out what's the benchmark God requires of us, Uh, the upper limit, as it were. Is it going to church 10 times a year, five times? Surely more than that's a bit excessive. It's only 10% of your income you give away, right? And that's that's, pre-tax or post-tax. You work out the benchmark and don't do any more, surely. If you do more, it would seem, as an Australian, you're doing something wrong, going above the bare minimum to keep God happy. Today we're getting to, uh, I think, the heart of uh, what makes the life of a Christian so radically different. And it's especially great to have our Year 7s joining us today as we think together about what this looks like for the rest of our lives. Uh, I hope as well that uh, if you're someone who is here and you're a bit suspicious about the whole uh, concept of Christians getting a bit too carried away, you're sort of checking it out or you've been dragged along with someone, as always, welcome. So great to have you here. Or perhaps you're a Christian who just sometimes wonders uh, why other Christians seem to be far more motivated and enthusiastic, uh, and you you kind of wonder sometimes if you're missing out on something. Uh, Well, for everyone, I hope as we look at two verses in Romans chapter 12, I hope we all get to see that the Christians who live their whole lives built around Jesus, 
But we're onto a good thing, the best thing. In fact, I'd argue, and this will be something that you might have to work out for yourself, I would argue it's the only thing worth pouring our lives into. Now, as a church, we've been looking at Paul's incredible letter uh, to the church in Rome. We've been doing this on and off, uh, looking through Romans since August, uh, which is almost an eternity ago now. Um, But we've deliberately taken our time, we're slowing down, we're trying to grasp all these big ideas Paul walks us through in the first 11 chapters of Romans. We've seen the Apostle Paul carefully explaining uh, what's at the heart of the Christian life. It's it's the gospel, uh, the good news about Jesus. He's explained this gospel from a number of different angles. He's sort of teased out some implications. Uh, But in chapter 12 here, we have the major gear change in the letter. Chapters 1 to 11, he's mostly explaining the gospel, explaining how it works. Uh, And then for the rest of the letter, from chapter 12 onwards, he's explaining how the gospel really impacts and changes every single part of our lives. So the first word, if you you have the the passage in front of you, the first word of chapter 12, therefore, uh, it kind of assumes we know what he's been talking about for the last 11 chapters uh, that we've read and mostly understood uh, the whole argument so far. 11 chapters about God's mercies. Now, I realise that's not going to be the case for many of us today. You might be just checking this out for the first time. And for all of us, August was a very long time ago. Uh, So what I'm going to do briefly is try and just summarise chapters 1 to 11 and pick up what Paul has been saying about God's mercy. Because you'll notice uh, in the verses we looked at, everything else Paul says about our lives, it all depends on whether God's mercy has truly gripped us and we've grasped it. So back in chapter 1, Paul started his letter about God's mercy kind of as a sort of a lawyer, lawyer for the prosecution. He mounts an airtight case that every single one of us by cosmic legal rights, we all stand guilty and condemned before our Creator. We are all guilty of outright rejection of His right rule. That is, Paul starts this letter about God's mercy, explaining first, we really need mercy, or we would rightly be facing God's judgment. Now, if that's not something that's uh, sort of sunk home for you, perhaps you haven't thought about that much before, you just, just disagree with it, um, it is a big, big concept, and a lot hangs on it. In fact, if we're not convinced of our need for mercy, the rest of what Romans has to say about mercy, it won't grab us so much. Uh, so if that's you, I would urge you to go back and read Romans uh, 1 to 3 especially and uh, spend some time perhaps listening to some of the sermons on our website as we walk through those passages together. I think you'll find Paul Mount's a pretty, it's unfortunate for us, but it is an open and shut case. But From chapter 3 onwards, Paul sort of explains the incredible way that God showed mercy to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus steps into the place of the guilty. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. That's what happens on the cross. Uh, Jesus willingly pays the price, the penalty, for the guilty himself. So the guilty, when we put our trust in him or put our faith in him, well, incredible thing happens. God counts our sin as taken up on Jesus. Instead, he sees us as innocent, as righteous, and entirely justified in his sight. It's it's extraordinary. But it gets better. From from there, God welcomes us into his family. He loves us with an unshakable, unbreakable love. He extends his eternal favour to us and offers us, in the here and now, freedom from the burden and poison of our sin. And instead, gives us life, life by his empowering spirit. It's astounding. It's astounding as Paul sort of walks us through what God's mercy and grace look like in our world. 
because it's all about what God does for us, and actually nothing at all, really, about what we do. Where we sort of left off a couple of weeks ago at the end of chapter 11, we'd seen that the scale and extent of God's mercy is also just mind-boggling. Like God doesn't just you know, look after a few who are pretty good people. God extends His mercy worldwide, throughout time. All around the world, people have the opportunity to turn to God uh, to receive eternal life. It's extraordinary mercy. Now, that's a very quick run-through of about 11 chapters of Romans. It's a very dense and complex uh, argument that Paul lays out. It's, it's hard to kind of summarise that. Again, you might like to go back and spend some time working through Romans, understanding the argument Paul makes. And again, our, web, our website has all our sermon series. It's hard summarising it. But the other thing that's hard about describing God's mercy is that for many of us, it, it's familiar. Every week here, we explain what happens on the cross as God gives us mercy and so if you're a regular here, you, for the last couple of minutes as I was explaining those things, things you know well, you love and you trust, as I was explaining those things, did you find yourself going autopilot for a few minutes, just a mental break in the sermon? Because you know it. It's familiar. That's fine. But familiarity with an explanation of God's mercy is not always the same as grasping it or being grasped by it. So uh, realising familiarity does sometimes need a bit of, uh, bit of a jolt, I'm going to try and use an illustration to explain God's mercy in a kind of different way. Uh, now, for this, I'm going to refer to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, uh, who is here at the RSL this morning. She's always at the back of the room watching over proceedings in that wonderful photo there. Uh, and apologies, Your Majesty, for this, uh, for this illustration, because I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, you have been involved, actually you're the mastermind, in a plot to assassinate Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. It's not because of some ideological uh, quest, you're not out for the greater good or you're not sort of uh, a ravid Republican uh, who wants to make way for a better system. It's actually just an attempt for a power grab. In your master plan, I don't know how you've done it, it's, it's genius, but you've worked out how to kill Queen Elizabeth and take the throne yourself. You're going to take power. That's kind of, uh, that's the issue. You have this wonderful plan, but then M M16, MI6, whatever it is, MI6, you get caught. Uh, they work it out and you face judgment. Traditionally, of course, uh, treason like that is punished by death, right? At the very least, you're going to expect a life in prison. Now, imagine uh, pleading to the Queen for mercy. You write her a lovely letter from, you know, from death row or in your uh, high-security high prison, asking for her mercy and a pardon. You might not expect it after all you try to kill her. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if she offered you that pardon and you got to walk free? Incredible. Now, God has done far more than simply pardon us. As extraordinary as that pardon would be, God's mercy runs far deeper and far richer. Not only have we not asked for his help, it's like we're giving him the middle finger as we're sent to the firing squad. We haven't asked for his help. So it's kind of more like Queen Elizabeth, out of the blue, offers you a swap. She says, I'll go to the firing squad, or I'll take up uh, your sentence in Mexican security prison, Serve your life sentence, and you, in return, get to be part of the royal family uh, with all the privileges that come with that. Now, if you think about it too far and too much, you'll realise there's multiple problems with that illustration, so don't think about it too much. Just an illustration to help us, I hope, grasp how staggeringly extraordinary God's mercy is. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. But lovely as Queen Elizabeth is, that she would do that sort of thing. Yet that is exactly what God has offered to us. And how would you feel about Queen Elizabeth if you did that? 
Well, as Paul starts explaining uh, the gospel and how it changes uh, and affects our day-to-day life, as he explains from chapter 12 how to live as a Christian, he wants God's mercy front and centre in that discussion to see that it's his grace and mercy that our lives are all about. And after all, it's only by his mercy that we have life at all. And so there is, I think I can call it a problem, there is a problem with God's mercy. See, normally, as I said earlier, like, don't we usually try and work out the bare minimum just to keep everyone happy? Uh, that's usually the case with a religion and in many forms of Christianity. What's the most I need to do to keep God happy and no more? What's the most I need to do? Keep a few rules, give some money to charity, uh, maybe go to church every now and then. The problem with the gospel, and maybe it's not a problem, maybe the issue with the gospel is we have already been saved entirely by God's mercy. Already. He has already made us part of his royal family if our trust is in Jesus, despite all we have done wrong. There's really nothing else for us to do. There is no bare minimum. There is no upper limit on what we need to do. Jesus has died for us. He's, he's brought our life with his blood. And he rose to life, giving us eternal life in his family. There is no percent limit on what an appropriate response is to that sort of mercy. So as Paul goes on to tell us, the only thing we can offer God in return is everything. It's everything. Our whole lives, uh, not just obeying a few rules or throwing a fistful of cash occasionally, our whole lives are given in response to God's mercy. Let me read, uh, please read with me, verse 1 again. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, You may have found it a bit surprising to suddenly be reading from Leviticus 3 this morning. I'm not sure if you thought that would be on the reading program for us today. Uh, It's a bit unexpected, isn't it? A bit of an unusual uh, part of the Bible if we've been in Romans for a while, just to jump into Leviticus. I thought I'd just pick something quite visual and vivid, uh, and it is visual and vivid, isn't it? Uh, To remind us, sacrifices are usually not living, if you saw nothing else in Leviticus 3, you would have seen those animals were very dead. They were very dead. They get slaughtered, uh, blood and entrails and their internal organs get thrown everywhere and then they get burned on the fire. It's, it's carnage. It's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It's a good point to mention. Do join us for the barbecue after the service today. It'll be, it'll be lovely. Might be our start smelling that aroma in a moment, actually. Um, Leviticus is, is a big mind shift for us, and I mentioned in passing, if you'd like to go back and think about it more, it's one of the first uh, sermon series we did here as a church, uh, well before my time, uh, but you can find the sermon series on our website to help you think through what the world of Leviticus and what's going on with those sacrifices uh, is about. But for today, even if the world of Leviticus is very different to our own day-to-day life, well, every religion, and in fact every way of doing life, it, it does involve sacrifice of one kind or another, doesn't it? Uh, it might be like in Leviticus, quite literally sacrificing an animal from your herd to, to please a god somehow. Uh, but more likely in our lives, in our world, we know the parent who sacrifices leisure or comfort or sleep uh, for the sake of their children and their children's lives. We're all familiar uh, with sacrificing something, usually something external to us, maybe a part of us or our lives. But to think that our whole life that we ourselves, our very person, become, become a sacrifice, a living, ongoing sacrifice. Realise we're not being told it's sort of part of our finances, part of our careers, part of our time. 
The whole lot is to be offered to God. It is the most extreme form of sacrifice imaginable, isn't it? A complete surrender of ourselves in the service of God. So do you see the, the problem or the, the challenge here of God's mercy? A mercy so rich and so overwhelming, the only true and proper response, the reasonable response, is to choose to be a living sacrifice. Why would we do that? Why would we offer our lives in such a radical way? Well, quite simply, it's pleasing to God. It's how we worship Him, and it pleases Him. See, when we're gripped by His mercy and, and I guess, taste the joy of, that comes from being in relationship with our Creator, of course we want to please Him, don't we? Like, in any healthy relationship where there is healthy love, that's when we do well, well and truly above and beyond the bare minimum, don't we? We love to go and serve and, uh, and to help and to, to adore the other person. When it comes to knowing God and His mercy, it's, it's the most normal thing in the world for us to want to worship Him. And Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. That is, it's the most reasonable or perhaps the most authentic form of worship that exists. Now, we of course worship as we gather, but worship doesn't just happen in a church on a Sunday morning. Worship happens in our day-to-day life as we go about our business. Each moment, each decision, as we're living our lives to serve God, it pleases Him. So our true worship is when we make life not about us, but about God and His glory. That takes centre stage in our thoughts, in our motivations, in our actions, in our words, in our finances, in everything. Now, as I sort of start spelling that out, we all realise very quickly that's far easier said than done, isn't it? Now, I always find preaching difficult. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard. Um, I, a couple of weeks ago, foolishly thought these two verses would be easy to preach on. Uh, what a breeze. Two verses, they're pretty clear, uh, easy to explain. There's heaps of illustrations and applications you can draw out. And most importantly, it's not Song of Songs, uh, which I preached on recently. What's hard about preaching these two verses is, personally, having a couple of weeks to reflect on how hard I find this, uh, being a living sacrifice. Of course, I make sacrifices sometimes, we all do, but my life is, is hardly a picture of pure worship. Uh, on further reflection, it struck me how infrequently I, I, I sort of stop and genuinely behold the mercies of God. Like I know it, I talk about it regularly, I preach on the mercies of God, but to stop uh, and to reflect personally that he has shown mercy to me, a sinner. I think I also then so infrequently ask God in view of that mercy to actually take centre stage in my day, to hand over kind of my motivations and my hopes for the day and, and uh, seek to serve him. Now, I suspect part of the reason I don't do it as frequently as, as I should is that reflecting on God's mercy by default means I have to sort of acknowledge my failures and my need for his mercy which is to say it's humbling. Reflecting on mercy is always humbling, and uh, therefore perhaps we, I personally, tend to avoid it. And yet, as we're told here, it really is the key. Everything hinges on being captured and grasped by God's mercies. If we lose that, uh, or if we let it old, be old news, uh, something we were far more excited about in our youth or something like that, I suspect what happens is we end up doing the bare minimum to keep everyone happy. 
But when we return to God's mercy and his grace, when we sort of behold the cross, make it part of our daily life, we can and we will, in view of God's mercy, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we farewelled the Purdy family. Uh, many of you know and love Malcolm and Ainsley. We said goodbye for now as they head off to Melbourne to train with the Church Missionary Society uh, to be missionaries, um, taking uh, their four young children uh, to the other side of the world to train pastors in Chile. Chile, Chile. I'm sure the last thing that uh, Malcolm and Ainsley would want is for me to make it sound like they are the perfect picture of Christian living. Um, they'll be the first to point out all the flaws, that sort of thing. But... But I hope that uh, as, our church, as their church family, I hope seeing their sacrificial lives, uh, I hope that's profoundly encouraging and, and challenging for all of us. Because why would they do that? They're very normal in many ways. In fact, they're brilliant in many ways. Malcolm has a, you might not know this, Malcolm has a PhD in science, I think chemistry. It was taking him places, he could have gone a long way with that. And they could have had a, a wonderful, easy, lovely life here in Adelaide with a great family and friends. They love their church, they were actively involved here. At 9 o'clock uh, a couple of weeks ago, as we were saying goodbye, I asked Ainsley in front of everyone, why are you doing this? Or why are you doing this hard thing? Ainsley's simple response was, well, why not, Cam? Right. Says it all, doesn't it, at one level? See, in view of God's mercy, it was just the reasonable next step for them in their worship and service of God. See, every part of their life, their, their PhD, the, the easy lives here in Adelaide, well, in view of God's mercy, it was all up for grabs. They'd always had it on the table before God, offering it to him, because their lives are living sacrifices. So uh, let me just leave this question hanging for a moment. You might like to write it down and uh, perhaps reflect on it later. What have you told God is not up for grabs in your life? You said he can have this, he can have that, but he can't touch or change that. What's not on the table when it comes to God? And why not? A great question, perhaps, uh, to reflect on, but don't despair about, uh, especially because of what Paul goes on to say from verse 2. Uh, from verse 2, we realise we're not the finished product, not yet. I think an exciting kind of uh, phrase we see here, we have a lifetime of growing in our grasp of God's mercy to us. So verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, not conformed to the pattern of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. The life of a Christian is about ongoing transformation. Day in, day out, year in, year out, being made more and more like Jesus. Now, the pattern of the world that Paul mentions here, I think in mind is, is chapter 1. He's described already for us early in the letter what the pattern of the world is like. And you, again, you could go back and have a look. We see the pattern of our world is to worship, to give our lives to anything and everything except God himself, the one person who is worthy of our lives. Paul's described in chapter 1 as well how our minds, uh, our default kind of, uh, at a default subconscious level, we're actually just hostile to God. We choose to ignore him, or actually, far worse, uh, we choose to give our whole lives, our whole bodies, our whole self in the worship of other things, things he's made, rather than to him. That's the pattern of the world. So what Paul seems to be doing here in verse 12 is explaining how to be a living sacrifice. We do it by not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. As we just start by seeing the patterns of our world and realise when we're caught up in them, what we're, what we're affected by, 
Notice the things the world worships and, and gives uh, sacrifice to. How are we affected by them? All kinds of things, often good things, good pursuits, career, finance, leisure, sex, relationships, a comfortable responsibility, free retirement. Now, instead of being transformed, we get away from that pattern of worship. Instead, we delight in God's will of what he wants of his people and how he would have us live. This idea of transformation, I think, tells us that if we're content with our current levels of uh, transformation in our life, we don't want to give God anything else. We've offered so much and no more. Or if we're just sort of happy coasting in the Christian life, we've got our major sins sorted out, the obvious ones, uh, and most of our theological questions, we've got it all worked out now. I think we've probably just found the bare minimum. And perhaps we are well overdue to reflect uh, deeply and personally on the mercies of God. So we have a lifetime of transformation ahead of us if we, if we are followers of Jesus, as we allow our minds to be continually renewed or perhaps reprogrammed, if you will. We want to see the patterns of the world and then to see the patterns of God and his will and then to offer our whole selves very happily in his service, in his patterns of how to live. Uh, last week, we, we saw a, a sudden and dramatic transformation, didn't we? If you were here last week, you would have uh, been uh, here, here as, uh, as Luke wisely took us through uh, the account of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. What an incredible mercy was shown to, let's be honest, a, a pretty terrible guy. Zacchaeus, not Luke. Uh, incredible mercy it was shown to Zacchaeus. And with it, incredible transformation. If you know the story, he goes instantly almost uh, from being a man whose life is built around worshipping money and wealth and then he worships Jesus. It's extraordinary. His mind was renewed almost on the spot. And if you missed that uh, last week, again, go to our website. It's all up there. It's a wonderful sermon. But Zacchaeus, like all of us, he still had a lifetime of transformation ahead of him, didn't he? Just thinking, uh, you know, what was he like as an older man? I've got no idea. Do you think he was grumpy and proud and sort of critical of the world about him? A cynical old man. He was perhaps greedy and obsessed with his retirement plan and his financial portfolio, trying to do the bare minimum. I don't think so. I don't know, but it seems far more likely to me because of God's mercy that he was so profoundly affected by. It seems more likely he was a picture of grace and generosity to others. Through his life, he constantly grew, he constantly grew in his godliness and his desire to bring God glory in his life. Another way to say it, I guess, is it really is a true gift of God to have our older brothers and sisters, our, our saints with us, week in, week out, those who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, those who have had um, a lifetime of their minds being renewed, as week in, week out, you've, you've read and studied the Scriptures, you've met with others and, and opened the Word of God, you've listened, carefully, you've listened carefully to the Word of God and thought prayerfully and carefully about how to apply it to the details of our lives, you've been transformed year in, year out. It's a great blessing for us as a church to have our older brothers and sisters to, to show us what a lifetime of transformation can look like. And I think it's also a true mark of transformation that our older brothers and sisters don't get frustrated with us, uh, visibly at least, with us younger brothers and sisters who clearly have so much more transforming to do, we don't even know it. It's, it's a wonderful blessing. We thank you, uh, we're thankful for God for you, and uh, we do want to be like you when we grow up. 
But we found last year, 2020 was a great year to realize that all our hopes, all our plans can go out the window very quickly. Maybe that will happen again this year. We do have great hopes and plans for the year ahead. We don't know if we'll pull any of them off. Uh, as we've already mentioned, today sort of does signal the kind of start of our, our church life year together, because kicking things off. And there's all kinds of things we can do. There's lots of what ahead. There's lots of things we could do that we might do uh, as a church. But what's more important than what we do is who we are as we do it. After all, our plans may change in a heartbeat. So I hope and pray, rather than what we do this year, our, our real focus is on who we are. And I hope and pray that, myself included, that every one of us increasingly becomes captured and overwhelmingly thankful for God's mercies. We can plan whatever we want, but if that's who we are, captured daily by God's mercies, if we're committed every day to living life in His service, it will be an amazing year together, won't it? No matter what happens. We might even need to come up with new plans. So would you join me in prayer as we ask for God's help in this? Heavenly Father, we, we are so thankful for your great mercy to us. Uh, please help us this year be people who regularly sit at the foot of the cross, being captured and enamoured by your great mercy, being driven by your mercy in all we do. Help us know in truth that even if the whole realm of nature were mine, that would be an offering far too small because your love is so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.